Let us uh, begin by going to the Lord our God in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you have called us yet again um, to hear from your word, both in the instruction of Sunday school, but later on in worship. And uh, may it serve to grow us in our love and appreciation of who you are and your redemptive plan, the God who truly saves us to the utmost. So we pray that you bless this study today. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to be in um, what is often referred to as the junk drawer passage in uh, Romans 16. Um, critics of Scripture sometimes suggest that maybe this shouldn't be in Scripture uh, at all, but of course uh, we believe that all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and and uh, there's actually a ton of theology uh in this chapter. In, in one sense, you want to look at Romans 16 a little bit as like how you would read the book of Acts, um, where there is a narrative going on that the apostle is, is giving you little insights and nuggets uh, throughout the chapter. So we will kind of uh, go through them today and, and hopefully learn more about uh, some of the theology behind this chapter. This chapter also has the uh, longest, um, it's the longest greeting that Paul has in the New Testament by far. Um, it, I believe it's the longest greeting in the New Testament, um, or possibly in the entire scriptures, but I, I didn't look into that. But uh, definitely for Paul's case, uh, he never takes so much time to greet people, to mention names as he does in this chapter. And I I do think there's um, a few reasons as to why he does this. One explanation for the long list of names, if we remember the, the two other times I've been up here, I've pointed out how um, Aquila and Priscilla, we know that they were kicked out of Rome by the Roman emperor. And so they met up with Paul in the area of kind of Ephesus, and then eventually also uh, were with Paul in um Corinth, if I remember, but yeah, they, they meet up with him in Ephesus, and other Jews from Rome would have met up when the Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius, uh, they would have met up with Rome, and so through that kicking out of Rome, he has over 25 names he mentions here. Uh, he knows a lot of people, even though he's never been in the city, uh, so in one sense, part of the reason why it's so long is that he is, he's bringing that out, that that reality happened, um, that there was the Roman persecution under Claudius, and they were forced to leave the city, and they were throughout the missionary land, former Romans who were Jews that had been kicked out of the city, Paul kept bumping into during his missionary journeys. But also, if we think about the, sorry, uh, Corinth, Corinth is usually, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's Corinth, where Romans is believed for it. But Ephesus is where he met up with Priscilla and Aquila. But he would have probably met members of the Roman church when the book of Romans is written. That Emperor Claudius decree is over now. We know it's over actually based on this chapter uh, because he's writing to people like Priscilla and Aquila who had been removed from the city. And now he now they're back in the city, and so we know the the decree has now been rescinded. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that tells us a little bit. But also, if we think about the theme of Romans, there's so much between the Jew and the Gentile. The, and this list in the uh, early church, and we'll get into, I think, a little bit more uh, along the way. Well, actually, no, we'll get into it now. The names, diversity of names here. There's a, a scholar named Peter Lampe, and he studied all the 25 names in chapter 16. And Paul is very intentional about picking Jewish names, picking Gentile names, picking the names that would have been names of slaves. Because in the ancient world, your name really meant a lot. It wasn't like, yeah, I like this name. We just sort of pick it. Sort of, it tells you something about the status of that person in their life. And so we have slaves. We have recently freed men slaves. We have wealthy people in these greetings. And so we have this diversity that he is talking about here. And I think it plays well with the rest of the letter where he is laboring the point that either Jew or Gentile, we're all united and engrafted under the same gospel. We have unity in Christ. And we don't need to um, put these hard walls between these divisions. He also takes time to mention several house churches, uh, verses chapter um, Aquila and Priscilla in verse 5. He mentions they have a house church. You know, The uh, Roman world is not one where they're allowed to have big church buildings. They meet in people's houses, but also verse, verses uh, 10 and 11 are uh, talking about a household. Uh, so it's probably a reference to a house church. Verse 15, another house church. And so these house churches could naturally develop rivalries and such. And so this chapter also speaks to that social context. We, we learn and we appreciate that for the early church, a church might have been 20, 30, 40 people. It's, uh, they would have been flabbergasted at the idea of thousand, multiple thousands of people in a church. Um, that, that is not within their purview. They don't have that idea of church. And so the theology of just the diversity of all these names, uh, how they come from several backgrounds, how they are Jew or Gentile, low-cost slaves, or recently free slaves, rich and poor, um, really uh, tell us of what the gospel hopefully leads to, a breaking down of some of those barriers. Uh, and they weren't perfect with it. They weren't perfect in their harmony. So it's not like one of those situations where, uh, you know, sometimes our churches can have a profile in one way or uh, or another. But we should be striving towards a uh, diversity in the body. And I appreciate that, that we have um, a vision of the church which has different ethnic backgrounds, nationalities, social standings, socioeconomic classes all mixed in together as one body uh, with varied experiences. And so um, so just as, as like a general look, this chapter um, has us ward against the idea of like very monolithic looking churches, ideally. Um, so it's good for the health of the church. But, um, and really that diversity begins in chapter 16 Romans with women. 
Women are over 33% of the people that Paul greets in this chapter. Um, it begins with uh, Phoebe uh, in Romans uh, 16. But, um, you know, there are elements, we'll get more into this, where women have no, there are ideas in Christianity that women have no place in ministry. And, and that is a great offense to chapter 16. It's uh, a terrible, terrible theology. And, and sometimes in the more fundamentalist, either be like a fundamentalist Reformed church or a fundamentalist Christian church, there is this kind of pervasive idea. And uh, Paul in chapter 16 is speaking against that uh, very clearly. Um, and so with that, let's get into... Uh, oh, sorry. Here are our handouts. Let us get into reading the first two verses. Uh, the first two verses talk about Phoebe, and let me uh, read those for you. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Century, and that was just outside of Corinth, um, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. She has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Um, so, when we begin this section, um, Paul commends Phoebe. Actually, that word commend there is basically, could also be translated, I recommend to you, Phoebe. And that servant there is the word diakonos, deacon. Um, the word deacon, uh, she was she a, considered a diaconos at the church a century, and that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So he's asking that she may be welcomed and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And so for that patron word, we're going to focus on that first, um, well, the diaconos we'll, we'll dive into quite a bit. There's been a lot of debate on both of these terms. Um, the first one is you can tr translate patron, that patron word, as a leader. She's been a leader of the church. Um, however, mostly in the ancient world, even in sources outside of Scripture, when you're talking about a patron or patroness, patronage was a significant part of the social structure of the Roman society, the Roman Empire. Patrons were people who, by their influence and their money, uh, would help sponsor the work of others. Um, so to usually succeed in that culture, you would need to find someone who would be a patron for you in order to move up maybe the social uh, hierarchy. It would help you in advance in career uh, and say a good weird, a word in an ear of an important person uh, on your behalf. This was the idea behind patronage. And so Phoebe, then, uh, Phoebe, sorry, Phoebe is then described here by Paul as a uh, likely wealthy Christian woman who is a patroness, that is one who used her money and her influence in the city in order to advance the cause of Christ. Um, and uh, rather than an idea of a leader, because the word patron is so common and that, that concept is so frequent in Rome, 
that seems like a fairly, uh, that, that debate is not as lively as the next one. And the next one is the word diakonos that's used for her. Uh, she is the only woman in scripture who has the uh, word diakonos attached to her name um, uh, explicitly. And, and it can be a divisive issue in the church. I actually consulted uh, my Greek professor and my uh, Pauline professor at RTS this week, just so uh, preparing to talk about the issue so he could, I could get his Greek exegetical notes on his study of the topic, and I'll, I'm going to share it with you in the next couple of minutes. But in the Reformed world, there's, there's basically six views that exist when it comes to uh, the idea of women as deacons. The first view is the avoidance altogether of the title, the rejection of the role altogether. Number two is the avoidance of the title, but functional women deacons uh, without the same authority as the office confined to males. Number three is the use of commissioned or but not ordained. Um, hence, some authority has some of the authority of the male office, but not entirely the same. Number four is the use of the title ordained, but does not treat deacons, male or female, as possessing spiritual authority, uh, rather an office of uh, service only. Uh, it has a use of a title, fifth view, is the use of a title ordains possessing spiritual authority along with male deacons, but under the authority of elders. It's a limited service, uh, not a role that there's teaching in. And number six is the uh, view of a fully ordained female deacon and also fully ordained uh, female elders with equal spiritual authority, including teaching and rule. And so, uh, regards to this chapter, we're going to not really deal with the eldership debate, but we will look into um, the acronym. Um The difficulty of Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, is that the word used for deacon is, is the word servant. So if we, we went to Greece and he said the word di, diacon, di, uh, diakonos, or deacon, uh, they would just hear you say servant. They would also understand in the Eastern Orthodox Church, for instance, that there's also a title of deacon. And the New Testament really uses this word in both ways. Um, there's a broad sense in which all Christians are called to be diakonoi, diakonos. Um, each of us is called to be a servant minister, but also there is a technical office that is used at times in Scripture specifically to the office. The numbers are 20, well, we'll exclude this one. We're excluding Phoebe for now. But 24 uses in the New Testament towards the general idea of diaconos, that we all generally serve as deacons, as servants. And those will be usually translated servants. Then there are five instances in the New Testament where um, Regardless of where you stand on Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, uh, both sides basically agree, that seems to be the ordained office, the specific office of deacon. Um, and so examples of, uh, of this, for instance, can be uh, found um, in Jesus' is called a deacon in passages such as Romans 15, 8. 
and 2 Corinthians 11.23. The apostles are called the deacon in places like Matthew 23, verse 11, Mark 9, verse 35, Mark 10, verse 43, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. Apollos is called a deacon uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Tychius is called a deacon twice, first in, uh, once in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, and then also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, 21. Uh, Ephesus is, is called a deacon in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7. Timothy is called a deacon in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verse 2. And Paul even calls himself a deacon in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. And I take the time to belabor all those instances of deacon because not one of those individuals was considered an ordained deacon. Not one of those individuals is their primary office that they would be seen as as an ordained deacon. And so all those would be instances where a personal name is used to a person to show they have these servanthood qualities. They are serving as a servant as well. Um, now, I, I guess Jesus you could debate. I do think Jesus was also perfectly a deacon for us. Uh, so, But the, the apostles, we see them as apostles and mainly see them as elders. We see in, for instance, Acts chapter 6, they designate the role of deacons to seven, indiv- seven men um, to help with the uh, dispensing of the bread in the church. And so um, Paulus was considered an elder. He's considered a teacher. These, these names, and so anytime in Scripture it's used in a personal reference for at least men, uh, ignoring Phoebe from this discussion, uh, it's reference to the work they're doing, the type of work they're doing in that instance. Now, the, work, the word deacon appears five times uh, in Scripture where all parties basically agree that this reference is to the office of deacon. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 is one instance. I'll just quickly read that. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so that's how we have the, the elders, the, the ruling elders, the idea of an overseer, um, and then deacons. And then also, Timothy chapter, First uh, Timothy chapter three. And uh, you might be surprised I didn't mention chap- Acts chapter six. That's because if you look at Acts chapter six, uh, well, that is obviously the establishment of deacons. Um, hopefully, so I preached as such uh, from the pulpit once, but um, that Luke never uses the word diaconos there. He doesn't use it in that passage. But um, let's just quickly look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. And we're going to look at that because there really is one verse uh, in that section of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, which is verse 11, that there is enough ambiguity in the Greek that you could make an argument that uh, that we'll we'll just kind of hear about. I'll just let me read that for you. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with 
a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Um, Wives likewise, normally is the translation, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband to one wife, managing their children and their households well, for all who serve well as deacons gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, The word there in the Greek that is most often translated wives is uh, gynecaeus. It can mean female. It can mean woman. It can mean wives. And so for those who take the idea that uh, women can be ordained deacons, how they will read that is women. They see it as uh, an interlude at that point, an interjection, you could say. Um, um, And speaking specifically to women as deacons in that moment. because that gune word, yeah, as I said, it can mean that. So, um, yeah. Now, considerations to the contrary. And I don't take the view that 311 is speaking specifically to a female deaconess. Um, Paul very clearly states in the immediate verse afterwards that, um, oh, wait one sec. Oh, okay. Oh, I could use that. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And so if it's not wives, it's sort of this weird interjection where Paul then resumes talking about the qualifications for male diaconate. Um, you also have this reality where verse chapter 3, verse 11 then becomes something of why it's different. It's a different list of standards if it's speaking of a female ordained diaconate. Um, It's a different list at that point. And so you have to ask, why is there a different list? And why is it not? Why do they have different lists? Um, When it comes to that that verse 12, the Koine Greek would have had a far easier way for Paul, if Paul was suggesting in 11 that there is ordained deaconess, um, verse 12, it would have been a lot, you could, can easily say in a neuter, there's a, a, there's a kind of a neutral, a neuter in the Greek, you could have more easily written the idea of spouses, but he goes back if, if you take the view of this, speaking of an ordained diaconate, he, he follows the pattern of 9 and 10. Um, he follows that consistent pattern. And so, um, yeah, that becomes part of it. Yes, that's in the masculine. That's explicitly in the masculine. And the argument for a female deaconess, an ordained, not commissioned. Commission, I, I do believe in the commissioning of female, uh, women to female diaconate, to diaconate work. That, uh, and I, and I do believe Phoebe is a commissioned deaconess. But when it comes to the ordination, uh, discussion, 
you have to take 11 as speaking to women um, separately, as an interlude, sort of a parenthetical statement. It's, well, it's a masculine, yeah, masculine, and then this is, this is towards women, but you're, what they're pointing out is in the Greek, that likewise word that's also in, I think, verse 9 or verse 8, uh, is used, I think you believe it's in verse 8, yeah, uh, that likewise is kind of used again, so they're saying that interlude shows that there's also a separate distinction for women, um, uh, for this is for ordained, potentially. Uh, there also is a kind of a solution of reading it this way, where you could just say it's for commissioning. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So, <clears throat> that being said, uh, Paul uses a lot of... Uh, he is very, in these sections, um, precise. Paul is the precise theologian. Actually, I was talking with John Frame and... and Stephen Childers, and they're, they're big in planting churches in Asia at, at the moment, and the Asian continent, and they've pointed out that, for instance, they use the, John's writings, because John writes in a more circular fashion. He reasons in a more circular fashion, John. And they use his writings a lot more in Asia, because education, the educational systems in Asia are far more kind of they're not Aristotelian. They're not like, you know, uh, Western ideas, which is like claim, data, or uh, sorry, I don't know why I wrote B, data warrant. You know, like give us my data warrant. And so, John Frames pointed out, and and others that have been working there, is the Pauline structure really of his thought and how he articulates the gospel really has been beneficial to Western Christianity. but um, And so Paul here, and my point in saying this, is Paul is kind of clearly laying out his case. And, and it, it seems odd that Paul would have this interlude and just kind of throw this in when all of chapter 3 is kind of this well-laid-out Pauline precision argument. It doesn't, it doesn't tend to fit uh, the Greek... Um, there is a possible tentative uh, solution to this where verse 11, uh, maybe a more charitable um, explanation of that, is that if it should be translated women instead of wives, uh, that um, it could be referring or an insert, not necessarily talking of women who should exactly share the same office as male deacons, but uh, theologians like Hendrickson, are, but talking about women who will assist the deacons in diaconate work, um, which the administration of the work, particularly in tasks uh, suited for their unique abilities. And so, um, and so it could be a reference in one sense to for deacons to uh, seek out these kinds of women when you need assistance from a woman in the diaconate work you're pursuing. Um, Ultimately, uh, the also, when it comes to this passage, um, yeah, we there's a while there is some spectrum and there's some uh, debate. Uh, Pastor and I, for instance, don't necessarily uh, 100% uh, uh, always line up on every issue. I don't know on this issue, but uh, 
every issue or, you know, or, or the elders of the church might have different emphasis. There, there is a spectrum, and the spectrum exists because there's a little bit of ambiguity. We have to admit there, there is some ambiguity. Paul could have been clear, um, a little bit clear. However, I do believe, as like John Frame would point out, God has a bias, and we need to learn what God's bias is. And I do think that uh, God uh, tends to, is God in His Word has revealed the idea of ordained diaconate uh, for men, but also that all participate in diaconate, and has allowed for uh, and or and has sanctioned commissioned um, uh, diaconate for women. Right. I know that should really help us sometimes because sometimes we want to be so binary. Mm. If you date that stance, you must be a little. Yeah. No, it's it's not really fair on the issue. The the Greek doesn't give warrant. And you know, for instance, now I've preached from the pulpit here a couple times. I'm not ordained to preach from the pulpit. I am commissioned to preach from the pulpit from the the Pacific Presbytery. I have been commissioned. Now, if on Monday are we going into work or Tuesday? Are we off on Monday? Okay, so Tuesday I go into work. And so, uh, and so Tuesday I go into work and I, that was a good way to see if I have tomorrow off. Uh, Tuesday I go into work and uh, I resign. I decide I'm going to go sell real estate. All right, I am... Not Pastor Kevin working in real estate. I was commissioned for a time to preach at the pulpit uh, at Spring Meadows. I was given that commission. Um, I'm not Pastor Pulpit. On Tuesday, Pastor Tim walks in and says, I'm retiring. I'm going to go make shoes and all that stuff and watch Tennessee football games in person for the rest of my life. He is still Pastor Tim. He's been ordained to that ministry. Um, It doesn't mean that functionally I can't. And right now, today, if Pastor Tim says I'm sick, I can preach a sermon from the pulpit. I've been commissioned to do that. Um, but uh, that is, there's a distinction in that office. There's a distinction in the fact that he, short of abandoning the faith, Pastor Tim is always a pastor, uh, even in retirement. Yes. Correct. I, yeah, I definitely think that's commission diac- diaconate work. No, no, I, I definitely think um, that is commission. And Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, strongly, strongly say, if you don't have that stuff going on in your church, because Paul is saying this woman is a servant leader in our church. And... He's not saying, so she has to be in yours, but he seems to be implying from those two verses, you'd be a fool not to use this woman and use her gifts. Um, I think Pastor Tim would have no problem in, in writing uh, you know, a letter of transfer to women of this church, and, and if they were to go off and go to another church, uh, this woman excels in these gifts and really could be a, a blessing to your ministry in this way. But there are some within the Reformed camp, fundamentalist camp, and kind of Christian fundamentalist camp who would say that, oh, that's so wishy-washy. That's so liberal. That's a slippery slope. And um, I just don't see that from Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I, 
I think uh, it's clear, and we have to be willing to say this person is doing diaconate kind of work, servant work, and um, be commissioned in it. So, um, yeah. So when we go through, kind of, when we think of that list, I think both extremes are entirely out of bounds. The, the extreme view of no woman, I mean, I've been in a functional church that tried to do the idea of no women ever having, even glancing at the diaconate ministry. And functionally, what happened was the women ended up doing it anyways. They ended up serving in that role because I, I believe through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because we're all called to that work. Christ compels all of us in the Gospels to diaconate work. He challenges his apostles and he says all of you are, are to be servant workers. Um, and so they are out of bounds in the fact that they try too hard not to recognize servant ministry and how, um, you know, Paul in this chapter, over 33% of his greetings are to women. Over And he says that this woman, Phoebe, is vital to the ministry. Phoebe was likely the person who handed this letter, most agree, this letter to the Church of Rome. She was the one who delivered this message. And so um, if you don't have that apparatus for commissioning women to that kind of work, um, you're not, there's not biblical fidelity on that end. And I also believe in the other extreme, for instance, uh, when you act like, when you kind of pick up the siren song of our age, that is, there is no gender distinction where um, it seems like, um, I can I just watch a movie and there was like, it just the, you know, the sort of fighting, the idea of fighting a woman as a man and that sort of thing. There's no, there, that, that area has been blurred or, or been unified egalitarian so, so much where uh, there's no distinction in the sexes that they also miss an idea that scripture is saying, no, I've created you as male and female to help complement each other in the work of the church. And um, so kind of the idea that, you know, anything you can do, I can do exactly the same way, that that would be an insult to the fact that God made man and woman to be a complement to each other and to complement each other's gifts. Um, and so I think both extremes, I think, uh, ultimately fall somewhere in the middle there. Um, and so, I, as I kind of made clear, I, I personally am uh, under the conviction that uh, when Paul is writing in Romans chapter 16, verse 21, I recommend to you, our sister Phoebe, a de- deacon, a diaconos, a servant of the church of century, that you may welcome her in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. I mean, think of the independence of that. She, you know, he's, he's commissioning her to deliver the letter and obviously to do certain things in Rome uh, as well, but may need from you. For she has been a patron for, of myself, uh, of many, and of myself as well. So um, high view, high view of how women can help the church uh, throughout chapter uh, 16. Um, any questions before we move on from that one? What do you make of the fact that the male, uh, male ending form of the word diakonos was used as to her in 16? Uh, diakonos there is 
diaknos can be also the neuter, I believe, on that. That uh, it's diakion. Diakion. It's the on ending, which can be um, a neuter, I believe, as well. If uh, I, I did consult my my Greek on it, and I believe, if I'm mistaken on that, but certain endings can be both male or neuter. We need um, sometimes there's usually a, a in front of it um, a header, but um, yeah, she she's not called the deaconess there though. Uh, she, she what? It, it could be the neuter form. She's not. Yeah, she she's. It can be the neuter form. Uh, she's not called uh, necessarily deaconess in that, in that passage, but um, yeah. Do we need PCA allowed No. Uh, and I, I agree with that position. The PCA. Um, it, it oh. You're recommending women be commissioned. Yeah, I think there's commissioning to ministry, servant work in the church, that the elders are uh, at their liberty to do. Paul is, yeah, Paul, and and should do, should do because they help in the ministry of the church. Uh, in the, they don't have they they usually get a lot less comfortable with commissioning. Uh, they're they're usually a lot less comfortable. In the OPC church I've been a member of, they were a lot less comfortable with the idea of commissioning. Um, but functionally, it happens anyways. It ends up happening when it, there's a church function. Um, so I think by default, it ends up happening anyways because you assign certain people to do a task within the church community. Um, and so even though... Most pastors from the OPC would say, what I'm saying right now is worrisome because it becomes a slippery slope. Um, uh, I, I again, I, I would stand with an OPC pastor in the idea that there is no ordination of female deacons. I can't, I don't see it in First uh, Timothy chapter three. I, I, Paul could have made that really clear, and and that verse eleven isn't enough to jump that idea for me. But from from verses like chapter sixteen, verse one and two. Uh, and just the fact that I, even if I just had the Gospels on this matter, Christ calls all the church when he is talking to his disciples. Even they're, they're busy, they're quarreling over the fact of, you know, who's going to be on your right hand side? Is John, is it going to be John or is it going to be James? Who's going to have the primo, primo seat? And Jesus goes, no, no, you've got it all backwards. Who, who's my servant? Who's my diaconos? That person will... Uh, the, who's least in the kingdom, that person will be exalted. Um, and so that idea uh, is for all of us. It's an imperative for the entire church. All of us are called to diaconate work, both male and female. Um, there's just this, but certain times in Scripture, it's speaking five times to the ordained office in Philippians and also uh, First Timothy chapter 3. And I believe in that, it is speaking to the role ordained uh, as the PCA holds and uh, has reaffirmed in the recent uh, General Assembly that that is specifically for ordained male deacons, but there also is room for commissioning. One of the um, things that happened in the 70s, 
happening when the PCA comes out of the PCUS and set up a committee and um, uh, structure and committees and agencies. Women's ministry was specifically added from the very beginning for this reason. Yeah. To allow commissioning when, you, when, when was necessary and that is different than the open sea if there's not a, yeah. a top layer for women's ministry in the structure of the church. Yeah. Um, and even to be more charitable to an OPC pastor position if he was standing here, or maybe even more fair would be to say an RPCNA pastor standing here, is the, the tendency is there's only been one denomination actually in all of American Protestantism that started to go more liberal and then kind of went backwards. Uh, became uh, That was the Southern Baptist Convention. Usually the trend is there are certain things that slowly erode, but I just don't see any warrant in Scripture to uh, suggest the idea of commissioning women to servant work and servant ministry is a problem biblically. That That's not biblical fidelity. Um, and so I don't think it applies. I just wonder if the lack of the term of being called a deaconess uh, makes women less effective in their love for God and what he has them to do in our church. And help no. Does the name? No, 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 not at all. Uh, when I when I preached on this um, a couple months ago, I, I pointed out um, uh, Brenda and how the women of the church, when Brenda was dying of cancer, filled roles that it just would not have been appropriate for our deacons, uh, there are ordained deacons to fill, and they serve functionally when they're changing their clothes, helping her bathe in a way that is no more or no less diaconate work. And that is why we, as male and female, can complement each other and that both need to be utilized in servant ministry in a church. However, yeah, there, there is a slight difference in the fact that commissioning versus an ordination. Uh, that, uh, that it's not a just uh, women women honestly serve a, in one sense a role that is more symbolic in that complementary relationship of the son to the father than men do and and so there's a there's an element of um, uh, that complement is being uh, to coming alongside as a helper in this ministry is a, a beautiful depiction of Christ and how Christ uh, humbled himself, took on flesh, and became a servant for us and is the perfect servant. And so there, there also is an element of that as well. Am I already that far? Oh. Okay. okay. Man, missed a lot of stuff on this. Um, where are we at time-wise? 13. Okay. Any final questions on... Yeah, I should have had more notes on it. Um, there is a, on 16.7, there's another uh, small debate. I'll just quickly go over it because it's not as lively. Um, 16.7 there, we have Androticus and either Junia or Junius. And um, where an accent could fall in the Greek, uh, 
could mean this is the junia is either a woman or a man. Um, and then some traditions like a Pentecostal tradition might try to say, because the Greek there could suggest that, are they esteemed by the apostles? Are they esteemed among the apostles because they're apostles? Or are they esteemed by the apostles because the apostles know of their work well? And certain branches, frankly with an agenda, try to say, oh, they were esteemed amongst the apostles. They try to create two apostles here. That's, that's a falsehood. Um, it really doesn't uh, exist. Uh, but, um, but I do think those two individuals are missionaries. Because apostle is one cent. Um, and they could be functionally missionaries. Uh, we'll just kind of skip over that. Good. Jordan Matthews, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, the, the idea is they also are doing, so that's that becomes a rub. Are they actually apostles? Uh, because, some people will try to suggest that. I think Paul is basically saying they are in ministry with me. They are missionaries with me. Paul is a missionary, apostle. He's traveling all over. Um, so apostle means sort of like deacon can mean the ordained office and or just servant. Apostles can mean the apostles. Well, that's really not my question. Oh, sorry. I've never read that in any any of the commentaries, at least. Um, I I think what the Greek is trying to do is to do justice to the underlying Greek. I mean, the translator is trying to point out some of the realities of the Greek. No, no, the kinsman word is the yeah. Oh yeah, yeah no. Well, they could, they could, uh, yeah. Paul wasn't born in Jerusalem, so they, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, uh, that either kinsmen in their work, or commending them as missionaries. They're known as great missionaries among the apostles. Um, so that's, I'm guessing that's why the kinsman word is there because the translator, I the. Guy at RTS, this is why I consulted him this week. He he would take the view if he was up here. Uh, they're being they're esteemed as really good missionaries before the apostles. He reads that verse that way. Um, all right, um, chapter sixteen, verse uh, thirteen. Rufus is mentioned. Um, this most likely is Rufus, who is the son of Simon of Cyrene. We can't know this infallibly. But uh, it seems to be that this is uh, the Rufus whose father carried the cross. Um, so uh, Mark fifteen twenty one. Um, I go into that a little longer. There's this closing warning that is unusual for a Pauline letter of uh, for his conclusions, where Paul suddenly launches into a broadside where he warns the church that people who are divisive uh, do away with them essentially. Uh, understand that again by the kind of general tone of the letter. It's trying to reconcile in one sense Jew and Gentile. Uh, and uh, yeah. Um, 
verse chapter 16, verse 20, it mentions the crushing. Soon uh, Satan will crush uh, God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet, which is an interesting verse, but I don't have time for it. Let me go to the back of your handout really quick. As is kind of a summary of Romans, unfortunately, um, I have to just give up on a bunch of material here. Um, the, just so you know, the doxology that concludes chapter 16 uh, echoes, and I, I put it in your handout, the verses, the opening verses of 1 through 5 and then of uh, 16 and 17. Paul has a lot of overlap there. You'll see that by the underlines and highlights and bolds in your handout. Um, but when it comes to a summary, the gospel theme of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 4, those were really the legal section of Romans. In those chapters, we see the problem of human sin, how no one can be saved by a strict courtroom setting whether of whether uh, if we can stand before God in such a setting as not guilty. And we can only be saved uh, through Christ alone. Uh, in faith through Christ alone, by grace alone. Romans 5 is a historical section. It is the ultimate lens pulled out where we talk about the first Adam and the second Adam. Um, Romans chapter 6 through 8 is really a union with Christ section, in my opinion, um, where what happens with this union, what happens is not only do we receive forgiveness of sins, but we receive a new heart that grows us grows us in its rejection of sin. And we receive through the Holy Spirit a gift to call upon God as Abba Father and we receive a confidence that no matter what happens, uh, God's love cannot fail for us. Um, chapters uh, 19, 9 through 11, I see as uh, really a section which deals with what the church now looks like. Um, Jew and Gentile reconciled together. Um, and for Romans chapters 12 through 16, I'm going to steal a title that Francis Schaeffer made uh, popular, but I see it as a how then shall we live section. How then shall we live uh, for the concluding chapters? Um, for that one through four is the legal section. Um, now in Romans, uh, I also wanted to kind of create a sentence. I know we're short of time summary of Romans through the chapters. So the, the kind of a paragraph, actually. Romans uh, 1 and 2 generally tells us we're all guilty of sin. We're all guilty of sin. And that's what I would write on that. Um, that either, no matter if you come as the elder brother, the Jew in one sense, so I'd be likened to the elder brother, or as the prodigal, the Gentile, who... Um, uh, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. We all are guilty. Then three and four, what I'd add to the paragraph is, but faith in Christ cures our guilt and shame. But faith in Christ cures our guilt and shame. While no son or daughter, and this is just me expounding on it, while no son or daughter of our fallen first parents can stand before God's judgments without guilt, God through the grace of Christ Jesus has made a way for us through faith. Romans 5 shows us how sin has affected all creation. Sin has affected all creation. And yet in Christ, we have a new creation. So sin has affected all creation. And yet in Christ, we have a new creation. And that new creation, of course, is 
in the process of purifying this world, of uh, bringing to life. Romans 6 and 7 lets us know that while we have a new freedom in Christ, sin is going to be an ongoing struggle for us. While we have a new freedom in Christ, sin is going to be an ongoing struggle for us. Romans 8. But Christ has not left us empty-handed. Through the Spirit, we have been adopted by the Father, and nothing can separate us from his love. But Christ has not left us empty-handed. Through the Spirit, we have been adopted by the Father, and nothing can separate us from that love. 9 and 11. God has not adopted all. But all who have been adopted are a part of his true church and his eternal plan of salvation. So 9 and 10, those, those Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God has not adopted all, but all who have been adopted are a part of his true church and his eternal plan for salvation. He has not made a mistake in that regard. Uh, almost done. Romans chapter 12 and 13. So be transformed in how you live with God, the church, neighbors, um, saints, and rulers. So be transformed in how you live with God and really extends to all facets. With God, the church, neighbors, the saints, and rulers. And then Romans chapters 14 to 16 the final addition to this paragraph we're working on. Finally, do not get caught up in the non-essentials, but serve God and his gospel through loving one another. So to conclude, finally, do not get caught up in the non-essentials, but serve God and his gospel through loving one another. Because uh, remember, 18 is the audiophora. Uh, the don't be a stumbling block to the brother. And so for me, if I was to give a paragraph summary of Romans, uh, that paragraph, for those of you who are writing it, uh, is really a summary of the book, I think. Um, uh, Paul uh, Moo, uh, who's probably the premier uh, Romans theologian alive today, he, uh, he also would summarize, if he was to summarize it in one word, uh, Romans is the gospel. Uh, the book is truly the gospel, and in its chapters we see an unfolding of how we are to live and the implications of that gospel. See, <laughs> so, uh, I was going to write it on the board, but I know I'm late now. All right, with that, let us close in prayer. Father God... Um, I know I'm a fallible man, and, and yet uh, in all things, we, we do look to an infallible word. We know that you have a bias, and you have um, truth that you want us to see, and, and it is a clear truth. And so we just I pray that this study uh, blessed us in better understanding uh, your truth. Where I spoke in error, may people be forgetful of it. Where I spoke um, in truth, may people be mindful of it. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.